Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the podcast that curiously explores the stories the body holds and tells through conversations, stories, and practices. Our mission is to connect the individual to the collective through our stories, so we may better understand our interdependence and ultimately live a more peaceful coexistence. Is that too much to ask for? Each episode builds from the last and contains kernels of every conversation we've had to date. We cover sciencey things like fascia, anatomy, the nervous system, and other body-based science. We also have a pretty high tolerance for the woo factor, which, let's face it, is also energy and should not be discarded as if it has no value. We are nature-loving, yoga and meditation teaching podcasters that could, aiming to make the world just a little better than we found it. Our motto is, leave no trash trace, we are only visiting, but leave your heart print with every step. My brain is absolutely where we're moving to, where we're moving into this this autumn, this wise woman autumn that we've been talking about. And that often brings up for me this feeling of retreat, this feeling of, you know, the hibernation of the bears in winter, this, you know, they move out from the big space and into their their caves or wherever they're going. And, you know, all the insects who are under the leaves that are sort of gathering warmth and, you know, the squirrels who are eating their nuts and trying to kind of prepare for winter. There's this feeling of anticipation and preparation for for something different. And for me as well, you know, I, I've got my vest on today. So for me, when we start coming into these changes of seasons, I guess the first thing that makes me realize like the squirrels are gathering nuts. I'm taking out my clothing for the winter. I've got my down vest and, you know, my ever-present hand warmers that (laughs) go on my hands as soon as it gets from below 70 degrees until it gets back up above 70 degrees. So this idea of preparation of what's coming next to make the transition from the hazy, daisy, hot days of summer into the cool, crisp autumn air and just every day something changing. And that's my kind of little sanctuary is going outside every day and noticing like, oh, look, those leaves are changing right now. Or even to watch the leaves fall, you know, how they dance through the element of air from their their decision. I'm going to call it a decision to say, it's okay for me to drop from the tree now. I have collected light. I have nourished this tree and now it's time for me to rest and I'm okay with uh, making that descent. So two things that come up from that for me are one is the deliberate thing that, you know, this choice, these choices that we make, we're preparing for winter, we're getting the new clothes out, we're doing the things that we know we need in order to thrive in the next season and the next thing that's coming. And the other thing is the instinct. It's the sort of natural processes that are going to happen regardless of whether or not we do the preparations. You know, the leaves are going to fall regardless. These are the cycles. These are the things that are going to happen. So how do we take care of ourselves? It's interesting to me that the things that we prioritize, that we prioritize you know, our warmth, we prioritize the immediate need, those things that obviously for survival, we need to make sure that we are, have the things that we need. But sometimes we let things that are of equal import sort of go by the wayside. And that is the slowing down piece. That is the taking time that is really not about achieving any particular goal or preparing for any particular thing. It is just, well, actually that's not true. Anything outside of ourselves. It is the prioritizing that we kind of put to the wayside of our own inner health, our own inner awareness, the things that will allow us to meet the moments with different types of clarity and strength and stability and, you know, just awareness. So that really, when you started talking about the wise woman and then going on with this preparation, it really brought me back into some of our past topics of balancing the masculine and the feminine energy to slow down, take time from the doing and redirect it into some of that slowing down, the being of 
what's going on in this moment, right? The those bears, they're going in from the doing of the season of the, the warmer seasons to the being of just kind of resting in their den. You know, skunks do the same thing. We've had some conversations about skunks in the past. They also <laughs> don't necessarily hibernate, but they go into their dens. They slow down and find this time of solace. You could say that they are retreating or going backward. They're going underground to this safe, quiet, and peaceful place of embracing the energy of just being. And this is one of those opportunities we have to be reflected in the nature around us, to be able to learn from the the just natural goings on of of nature. So, you know, our culture doesn't really support that for humans so much. Our culture. Other cultures may. I'm not a, a scholar in, you know, that kind of uh, work, but <laughs> that kind of work, sociology, that kind of thing. But this idea that if we were to really encourage, like there are some cultures that have siestas that they encourage rest during the day. And how brilliant is that? I just think it it's one of those things that we don't think we have time for. We think if we just, if we're always on go mode, then we will get all the things done. We'll have all the material things that we want, desire, need, whatever that is, but at what expense? So I'm just going to take this moment in the beginning to to read a little story, a story that we all know. I'm going to do the the sort of medium one. We all know Aesop, Aesop's fable. And if any of you have never heard the tale of the tortoise and the hare, then sit back, you know, grab a cup of hot coffee or a hot chocolate and maybe just a lemonade or something and just chill out because I'm going to tell you a little story. And what I think is interesting before I tell the story, because this is the way I communicate, is that almost like the archetypes and patterns that we have talked about in the past, there are certain things that transcend generations, transcend cultural trends, transcend these time things that we go through, <laughs> that we call history, because they're relevant regardless. And I think that goes back to the archetypes. So this fable, I don't know, we've got a research, I didn't get the date of Aesop, but been around for a while. Here we go. There once lived a very proud hare. He loved to stroll around the warren with his nose held high in the air. Everyone knew that the hare thought he was the best hare there ever was. There was one thing that the hare was more proud of than anything else. He had been blessed with strong back legs, and that meant he could run very fast. He never missed an opportunity to show off his running skills to his friends, and no one had ever been known to run faster than him. Or not until the day he met the tortoise, who slowly crawled by as the hare was bragging to his friends. Hurry up, hurry up, old tortoise, <laughs> laughed the hare. <laughs> if you went much slower, the grass would grow over you. You may rush all you wish, the tortoise said but I get to where I want to be soon enough. Thank you. He looked the hare up and down slowly before continuing. In fact, I reckon I could get there quicker than you, fast as you are. <laughs> the hare burst out laughing. Quicker than me? <laughs> that I should like to see. And so he challenged the tortoise to a race. The arrangements were soon made, and the very next day, everyone arrived to watch the hare and the tortoise run their race. Five, four, three, two, one, go, cried the rooster, and in a flash, the hare was out of sight and over the hill. The crowd clapped and cheered as the old tortoise lifted the first foot and then the other and slowly began to make his way along the path. He looked neither to the right nor to the left, but kept his eyes on the winding road straight ahead. The hare raced along the road. It was obvious to one and all that the hare was in a great hurry, and it seemed he would surely win. Far behind him, the tortoise plodded steadily along. Soon the hare had reached the race's halfway point. Aye, plenty of time, he said to himself. I must be miles ahead of that old slowpoke tortoise by now. In fact, <laughs> I could have a snooze right here and now. And when I wake up, continue on my way, and I would still have time to beat that tortoise. And so the hare sat down under a tree and went to sleep. The hours passed by, and after a time, the tortoise appeared over the hill. He walked down the road till he reached the spot where the hare sat, fast asleep. 
The tortoise looked, but didn't say a word, and continued steadily on his way. The sun was beginning to go down when the hare suddenly woke up. He laughed and stretched and saw to his satisfaction that the tortoise was nowhere to be seen. <laughs> Plenty of time to win the race, said the hare to himself happily. Off down the road he sped, but as he came over the hill he saw the most amazing sight. There, ahead of him, was the tortoise taking his last few steps toward the finish line. The crowds cheered wildly as his shiny shell broke the tape in two and the rooster declared him the winner. As the hare panted for breath at the end of the race, <laughs> the tortoise smiled. Slow I may be, but I keep my eye on the goal and don't let anything distract me. So there's the story. That's the story. And it's, you know, these practices of slowing down and their value. And it's not about, you know, just moving down that straight line. And it's not, yeah, I think that there's something, there's, there's juice in both sides of their story. There's a balance to be had here. But I think we all get the point of this. If we were all to slow down just a little bit. The wisdom is in the story. It kind of speaks for itself. There were so many levels in there from the uh, slowing down, keeping your eye on the goal. Also, you know. The hare was a little arrogant, thinking that there was nobody who could, <laughs> right? like, couldn't possibly lose. So, you know, sometimes we settle into, I got it. And that's a distraction in itself. But I like what you said about this slowing down. Some people say that if I slowed down anymore, I'd be going backward. But <laughs> I remember in a yoga class, uh, somebody Is that still true? Is that still true, do you think? It's true in different ways and not true at all at the same time. If I'm teaching a yoga class or working with somebody, I do really embrace slow movements to build a deep awareness yes. of sensations that are in the body and to reconnect with that sensorial part of ourself that communicates that for me and people who like to take my type of class, which isn't everybody, the slowing down is filled with information for me to explore and build a deeper awareness of myself. But I also have a tendency of uh, over overscheduling myself and running from place to place and trying to fit everything in. So, you know, there's a balance between slowing down and keeping your eye on the goal and getting it done. And you bring up a really good point because there is a, and I hate to use the word difference, but there is a different feeling sense about a formal practice and then living your life. You know, we go into class to take, to learn practices so that we can then draw them out and apply them. Of course, it's never going to be, you know, everything always is going to work like this practice all of a sudden, because the practices that we do are sort of path without a goal. You know, if there was a goal, it would be for clarity and strength and stability and discernment and, you know, the things that we apply to the things we do along the road. But, you know, what we do is really path without a goal. So the story that I read and our lives, we do have goals. You know, there are things we're looking to do. And so, you know, how do we kind of reconcile the philosophy with the practical everyday situations? And so that's why we go on retreat. That's why we do things. We take ourselves out of our everyday cyclical patterns. And by removing ourselves from them, I think we're better able to gather the data to make real transformational change. When I arrived at Kripalu and last Last episode, we'll tell you more about that. But when I arrived for our first night, they reminded us that we weren't on retreat. We were in a training. And there's subtle differences to, you know, being in a learning situation that is out uh, more external. By the time I was done, I felt like I had been on retreat, <laughs> even though it was, you know, this isn't a retreat, it's a training. There was a lot of uh, discussion and presentations on a variety of different things, birds and scat and tracking and building fire and all of these things. But each and every one of them felt like a fun, a fun segment of uh -huh. a retreat that I was on because I enjoyed them so much. So, uh -huh. you know, everyday life, even when we don't label it, I am on retreat, we have these opportunities to look back and go, 
well, gee, I can just take this moment mm -hmm. to take a nice soft inhale, a nice slow lingering exhale. And maybe it's not formal, but it is a momentary rebalancing to just be like, and have that awareness that I just need to breathe for a second or two. And sometimes we need to remove ourselves from the the rhythm of our everyday routines and, you know, because we can get stuck in that. And so unless you're someone who practices with regularity, you know, and not just, you know, every day doing a little bit here and there, you might not even know that you can do that. It might not be something that is is enough on the surface of consciousness that you say, oh, I'm just going to take this breath right now, which is why we go on retreat, like actual formal spiritual retreats. I mean, we know both of us looked up the definition of retreat just because that's where you got to start, right? Merriam-Webster. <laughs> and that it's a military origin story that is, you know, to move away, to move away or withdrawing from the danger. And I used to conflate retreat with refuge. While they're connected, you know, retreat is the act of moving away into a safer place. That refuge is that place. And so, you know, a lot of these practices that we do have their roots in Hinduism and Buddhism. And I'm not going to go into a whole treatise on the Buddhist part uh, because it's, I know enough to kill us all is what I'll say. But Tara Brock, who is someone who knows a lot more than I do, you know, she reminded me of the three gems, the, the, when you take refuge in the Buddha, you're taking refuge in the, the Buddha as our own awakened self, the Sangha, which is the community of sort of like-minded, like-hearted aspirants, and the Dharma, which is the way or the path, the practice, the things that we do to move along that path. So these are the three things that we would take refuge in to create a formal practice that, you know... Uh, we could implement into our daily lives or and or, you know, create a more formal experience with. But I think it's interesting. I, I've always called myself a Krista Hindu Buddha Jew, like all paths to the same place. And it's, you know, these are opportunities to take refuge, to go inside, to withdraw, to retreat within. And depending on where you're born, what family you're born into, what, you know, cultural, spiritual, religious, you know, container that you you are born into. That will be the first language that we know. And some of us don't resonate with the language of our birth. And so we seek out other languages to create a, a new container. And sometimes it's, you know, I like, I'm a buffet girl. I like to take a little from here, a little from there, and, you know, create my own little poo-poo platter of practices, I've said before. <laughs> I like that you're a buffet girl. Like, yeah, I've mentioned before, I come from a really large family, and we have a saying that's really important here, and it is, you have to know how to run your plate on the buffet line. <laughs> you need to know when to get up at line when there's so many people so that, you know, you have a good pick. And you need to know how to run that plate so that everything that you need to fit on a buffet line fits into that one plate. You don't want to have to get up for seconds way too fast. <laughs> but there is that so many practices, so many things that we can choose from in that poo-poo platter of practices that allows for a customization of the things that are going to most serve me. And in light of you talking about refuge, I also love the word sanctuary. Every time I'm in my yard or I'm planting a garden, I'm always thinking in the back of my head, this is going to be my sanctuary, this place of recess for myself, this place of Refuge is a word that would come to my mind when I was talking, a place for me to rest and be at peace with myself and nature. So sanctuary has always been a word that I love, allowing for this deeper connection to my physical body and maybe even letting that awareness fade away at times so that my time spent in my sanctuary is a time for me to let my emotions flow rather than being stuck with them. So it's almost an emotional withdrawal, just like the word retreat is to step away from the stresses and the strains of my everyday life, even if that is for the length of time of a cup of coffee, sitting out, listening to the birds. When I frame it into this is time in my sanctuary, it's different than I'm going to go outside in the back, sit on my chair and have a cup of coffee. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, intention is everything. And, you know, as as I was reading and sort of trying to compartmentalize and connect these dots of you know, retreat and refuge and, you know, you and I came together because we we do these things. They we've been practicing for a while. We have a natural inclination to to be in wonder as we wander. So I feel like what the reason we have magnetized together on one level is so that we can share that with others so that those who may be more like the hair and moving very quickly through their lives and, you know, sort of quick, quick, quick. And then there's a bit of burnout. So you take a rest and then you think that you're just keep go, 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 go. That we have a really, I think, important opportunity to be able to offer these practices in a way that is is positive, has benefit to others in their daily lives. You know, you brought up, you know, this idea of sort of withdrawing. And I just briefly, I'm not going to dwell on this, but I need to address the potential shadows of retreat as well. There are many, I think the benefits outweigh, but one of the benefits of going on a formal retreat is having guides. It's having a coach. It's having a teacher there who is going to both witness and experience with you so that as you grow as coaches and guides and teachers, we can give you little nuggets along the way to help you progress down your own path, because that's one of the values of having someone outside yourself witness. But some of the potential shadows are avoidance. You know, we can just be constantly going on retreat so that we don't have to actually engage with our, with our lives, with those stressors. And practice is not about avoiding stress. It's about meeting it in a in a more healthy way, in a way that we can sort of, you know, manage and move through and navigate in, you know, different, different way. And then the other is addiction. We can get addicted to retreat because it feels so good. You know, talking about it's the, the difference between a training and a retreat. Yes, you're you're being taught how to lead people on these things. So you you have to have the benefit of it too, so that you experience, so that you can tell people and guide them through it, knowing that there's something. But for those who are just in a constant, and it feels good, you take those deep breaths, you oxygenate your your blood and your body, and you're able, you know, all of the physical, all of the koshic benefits of retreat can also lead to addiction the way, you know, it can with drugs or alcohol. It feels good, you know, let's just keep doing it. And so I think that there's there's something to to address there, but not dwell in. Well, I can totally relate because I clearly did not want to leave. Kerbalo, <laughs> after the time of being there, you know, it's, I don't necessarily like the word coming back into the real world, but it is, it's coming out of that retreat, out of that time where the only thing that I needed to focus on was me. And then leaving and knowing that once you take a step out of the retreat, it can also feel like it was a long time ago when we step back into the routines and the the requirements of daily life. But I also loved your point of how do we take parts of that with us? And that I think is one of the major lessons that I took away from my training slash retreat was how do I take little bits of it with me away so that it's not so far from my daily everyday living and because we're focusing on mindfulness, this was a mindfulness outdoor experience training that just bringing in that, that one part of the retreat of mindfulness, stepping outside, I have made a practice of stepping outside my home slowly, just a pause at the door, at the door, at the threshold, taking a deep breath and going, okay. Now I'm stepping out with awareness. And as I do, just noticing. It could be noticing the tree across the street, a sound of a bird, or that squirrel who's looking for its nuts and running around all hurried, preparing. Feeling the earth beneath the feet is such a powerful practice that doesn't take any more time than what we're already doing because we're already walking from place to place. And I think it's important at the end of a retreat to take those little nuggets that, yes, we can take the ones that are going to change the way we allocate our time. 
but how do we fit them in, in ways that don't have to change the way we allocate our time for those of us who are saying, well, I don't have time to, you know, start a formal practice, but a slow exhale on the grocery line, you're already standing there anyway, or, you know, being mindful enough to feel your feet as they touch with each step and, you know, intentionally connect with groundedness and presence. These are activities of daily living that we can just bring that one extra level of mindfulness to that gives us small moments of retreat. Yes. And one of the reasons you're such a wonderful teacher is that you embody this already. So you're not just talking the talk, you do this every day. And so there's an experiential piece that you get to share with others who may not have that thing. So in terms of you were talking at first in the tree and the leaves choosing to fall and that there's, you know, both the, the deliberate part of that and then the cyclical natural thing that would happen anyway. And my experience with retreat and it also is with intentional communities that are not intended to be retreat, like rainbow gatherings, Grateful Dead shows, you know, going out and doing, you know, camping with friends or whatever that is. When you go into an intentional community, there's a sense of, I want it ubiquitousness. <laughs> you know, we, we share a certain similarity of, of intention and leaving those coming into, again, we in Rainbow, we didn't call it the real world. We called it Babylon. <laughs> you know, we were leaving and going back into Babylon. That it always, it was interesting to me that it was, wasn't usually a conscious choice, the things that I would take out of that. But it was almost like my soul was a sieve. And what was meant to stay in the colander stayed there and became part of, it was an embodiment from the experience that was more the natural result of it. You know, not the choice, the natural piece of the leaves falling, that that was what I was meant to carry into my life back in Babylon. That this piece of unconditional love that I had experienced was, you know, part of that was going to be what, what I was able to bring back with me. The things that were more choice-driven, the things that I thought, oh, this is what I want to do with my life. And I'm going to take this unconditional love piece. I'm going to hug everyone. So here, I'm going to, this is story. My dad used to tell this story. This is much clearer than anything I could come up with. So there's a guy, he gets on a bus. It's a city bus and he sits down and at the next stop, a woman comes on. She's, you know, got a cane with her and this guy stands up and he's like, please take my seat. And she puts her hand on his cheek and she says, thank you so much. And she sits down and everyone on the bus is so moved by this touching of the hand on her face that each person is touching the person next to them, hand on their face. It's almost like a whisper down the lane. Everyone is touching and there's a sense of community. There's a sense of intentional community. They were all there for this amazing moment. And then someone gets off the bus and they're coming off the, they're walking down the steps and someone's coming onto the bus. That person wasn't there. And they put, he puts his hand on her face and she slaps him. <laughs> he wasn't there. So this guy who intentionally was going to bring this piece out, it was out of context. It didn't have the, the same feeling state of consciousness about it. I guess they call it bhavana in yoga, but that we can make a deliberate choice to bring things out into the world. And many different things can happen. We can get slapped in the face like this woman did. It can feel contrived. It can feel like, oh, you know, it, it doesn't feel the same as it did there. And if I just do it out here, it'll have similar benefit. So I think it, the bottom line of everything that we do is about discernment. It's about, you know, is this an appropriate time to bring it in? And even sometimes our, our consciousness, our deliberation, our deliberate action can be forgotten. You know, it's so how it, it's tricky. And so that's why regular practice is important so that we create new neural pathways, so that we create new patterns of being that we then at some point will want to interrupt and, and change again. <laughs> maybe, that's, maybe that's one other way of exploring the word retreat, which comes from the Latin word, which means to draw back. and. You're talking about the things that we intentionally do and those that we just embody based on an experience that we had. And how do we bring them forward in, in our own life? And all of the things that I've noticed after retreats 
might be me touching the face and getting slapped because it was really <laughs> like contrived and really pushing it forward. But really, I think the more powerful part are the subtle shifts in myself that happen because of an awareness that revealed itself in this time of being able to withdraw into uncharted and unexplored parts of myself. And whether that retreat is an afternoon, uh, a weekend, nine days, 10 days, you know, coming in with an openness to be okay with, you know, looking at those shadows that you talked about with a guide who is holding a safe space for this experience to happen. But for myself personally, to be okay with, you know, looking in at the things that maybe were unexplored because I was hiding from them. I did a, a training yesterday uh, on yoga therapy and the yoga therapy's ability to be integrated into conventional medicine. And I always ask this question at a lot at my trainings, and it will start with, and I'm asking you as the listeners. And you just, led it. You didn't take it. You led the Oh, I led the it. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's All okay. Right. I yes. to be clear about that. Yeah. And I'll ask you, put your hand on the place where you hold your stress. And everybody reaches up and puts their hands someplace on their body. I see a lot of hands that land on shoulders, some that land on the low back, some that even landed on the abdomen and the stomach. But I rarely ever see one hand that lands on the head where the thoughts are, where the monkey mind is going over and over the strategies or the stories of stress or really processing a activity or something that is causing stress. There's put in the body. And I kind of equate that to this wanting to look at uncharted areas, to have this willingness to consider, why do I put the stress on my shoulders rather than looking at it, processing it, giving it a safe space to be explored, to be felt, whether that feeling means that I'm going to end up crying or I'm going to end up laughing, but to be able to feel it fully so that it can be processed and it doesn't become one of those stories that are held in whatever place when I say, where do you hold your stress? Wherever you put that hand, why is it there? Why are we holding it in our physical body and maybe retreat, creating that safe space to be okay with a deeper exploring might just be uh, the pathway of relief. Yeah. And, you know, a follow-up question to that is because what if our habit is to, like my mother, there are photos I, I'm of sorry, her, I have yeah. to stop you right here. I have to say that Luna is, has the perfect timing because whenever we're talking about interoception and coming inside, the dog that's named after the moon and the feminine energy always makes her thoughts known. That's so very thank sweet. you, Luna. There's a car right outside and she's barking at the car. Uh, but yes, good timing. The timing is all there. But the follow-up question that I would be curious about, because if things are hidden, that means we can't see them. And often when we're in a pattern, we don't know we're in the pattern. You know, it's like the fish doesn't realize the what's water, you know, that kind of we're in this situation. So unless someone guides us to look into those darker corners, we may not ever see what's there. So if no one is putting that, I started to say my mom, there are pictures of her. Anytime she was surprised, she would hold her stomach. She walks in her, immediately to her stomach. She also had a bleeding ulcer in her stomach. There was like a lot of, and in the end she had cancer and it started, it was a cancer of the soft tissue and that was the location of it. So I find that really interesting in terms of that. But in terms of not putting on head, I didn't hear you say heart either, where, you know, we might have stressors on the heart, but it, the, the shadow or the dark corner that that hidden space may be, I don't consider my mind part of my body or my thoughts as part of my body. And season one, our koshas, we look at the layers of our being and our thoughts are definitely part of that. 
And I think sometimes if we're conflating mind and brain, you know, our actual physical organ of the brain, which to me is the the physical part of the body, but the mind becomes a bit more philosophical for me. And it's harder to kind of decide, is that part of the body? It's certainly part of the experience of being alive. But then we get into to different ideas of what is corporeal, what is, you know, mental, what is, you know, all of that. So then the question would be, so I see, you know, no one has their hands on their head. Who here considers their their mind, their head, part of their physical body, you know, or part of what draws in the stress? Or is that just sort of central control, you know, your sort of headquarters, your mind is your headquarters, and that that sort of distributes the stress to the parts of the body, like the shoulders or the low back or wherever it might be. But again, no answers, just questions and curiosities about how we imagine ourselves, how we see ourselves. You know, do we include all of the layers of our koshas in the experience of our physical, of our bodies? I shouldn't say physical bodies because that is a particular kosha, anamaya kosha. Is it anamaya? You got this. Anamaya Kosha is the place. You know, and Dr. Andrew Sills, and I believe that he passed away, I think in 1908, but in the early 1900s. But he wrote, fascia is the branch offices of the brain. And since you were talking about that brain-body connection, so knowing that he passed away in the early 1900s, he was well ahead of his time in talking about the system of the body, the fascia that is getting more attention and research over the past 20 years than clearly it did in 1908 and, you know, the early 1900s. But... He already knew that it was this communicator that was the connector. So whether that brain and those thoughts are physically or how we view them as being a part of the body, it's interesting uh, when you were talking that it reminded me of this quote that I know from Dr. Sills that it's the branch offices of the brain, meaning what's going on in the head is being processed, communicated, And there's this felt sense from the receptors that we hold in our body to process or give signals to move or to withdraw or whatever it is that the action needs that the action that needs to take place in relation to some of those thoughts. I wonder if, you know, the body, I mean, obviously it's all, the body is the container, but we say, where do you, where in your body do you hold stress? I would think physical body here. I wouldn't necessarily think mind, but if you say, put your hand where you feel stress or where you hold stress rather than in the body, just where do you hold stress? Maybe, I don't know if I would, because now that we've had the conversation, you know, I know the punchline, <laughs> you know, I already know the end of the story, but I wonder if I would have considered the mind if it had been framed without the body. Yeah, I did say body while we were talking now, but I don't know that I actually use that word. I probably just say, where do you hold your stress? But, and I imagine I go back and forth. I'm never really consistent with- No, I mean, but you're talking about the body, you know, yoga therapy. I mean, it makes sense that the body would be the thing you would be pointing to, but I'm just like, philosophically, do we hear things differently when we add or detract words? I mean, I'm I'm just assuming because- we all have different relationships to language. So I, I just, I don't know. And this is part of being a teacher that I love because I get to play with language in a group setting to see and to actually see the room, read the room and notice what lands, what doesn't. And I, again, part of why I think we magnetize to each other is because we share similar intentions. We share a similar desire to kind of gather people and their stories and do the things that we're doing. And we have different energies. We have different ways into that whole thing. So we get to bring the wholeness of our, of our energies together and present it to others. And, you know, one of the things I was reading about the science shows meditation in retreats is more helpful than daily meditation at homes. This comes from a a website called Pyramid Valley. And I don't want to read the whole thing. It's kind of long, but just basically says, um, and this is from August 6, 2021. We've long known that ashrams and monasteries have been key, the key pillars of teaching spiritual science since ancient days. 
practices such as meditation, silence, and service were the key activities all students and residents of these residential schools performed every day. And the goal was to ensure that key skills of concentration, discipline, and endurance were not only learned, but practiced diligently by the would-be yogis and monks. Today, these practices, meditation, mindfulness, and gratitude have become mainstream. But then they go into saying how, you know, often people who are now, we are able to gather the tools at home through social media, through the internet, whatever, to learn how to do certain things. But he, what does he say? He says, I don't know who wrote this, uh, actually wrote it, but saying that when we learn these tools, it's like we're learning golf or we're learning certain activities and we can learn the skills to, to perform them, but that doesn't mean we're going to progress on the path and that it may be that we never actually improve. Another difference between amateurs and experts, two terms I really don't care to use, but they're just used here. Amateurs learn the basic moves of the skill, whether golf, chess, or presumably mindfulness and the like and very often level off after about 50 hours of improving through practice. For the rest of the time, their skill level stays about the same, and further practice does not lead to great improvements because we've sort of gotten to a plateau, and you know we're practicing every day and we're doing our thing, but we're not growing, we're not learning. And so I want to just you know emphasize this, that this is one of the reasons why going out of your comfort zone, going out of your home and experiencing a formal retreat with guides will be one of those things that can help inspire a growth spurt in your own home practice. And then, you know, that's why we have to do them periodically. And we don't just do, we're not a one and done situation. Doesn't mean you have to go every week, like you go to church or services or whatever, but maintaining a consistent practice emphasized and punctuated with actual formal retreat is, it's a game changer. Game changer, yes. And, you know, a word that I don't use a lot is transformation because I think that there's certain things that are really important and there's so many levels of transformation. There's so many different levels of little tiny things that make a huge difference and huge things that maybe don't have such a big difference in our own personal life. But there's always the but or the and. And I have noticed for myself that at the times that I have been on retreat, I've been to Kripalu, I've been to Costa Rica, I have been to the Himalayan Institute, these times that I kind of step away from the schedule. And I won't even say the activities, just the schedule of my daily life and refocus my attention for shorter and longer periods of time on self, I always walk away with that word in my head, transformational, whether it was something tiny or just walking away feeling like I am completely changed, which I did come down from this past retreat of spending all that time in nature, feeling a lot of changes that are still processing that will continue to grow within me and, you know, help me to find places of quiet and places where I feel serene because so much of what happened and so much of what I think about, I had time to allow it to illuminate. And earlier you talked about like really needing to step into some of those shadows. And I can say that within the time that I was experiencing this retreat slash training, <laughs> there were times where it was really uncomfortable, where I felt a little agitated at sitting still in my sit spot, like I was antsy. And I was like, when do we get, when, when can I just get up and move? I began to realize that when I started feeling antsy and saying, when is this going to be over? When can I get up and move? That was one of those places of avoidance, whatever was circulating in my thoughts was like, yeah, we need to get out of here. So there was a physical representation. I need to get up. I'm a little agitated. I wish I could get up and walk around, leave my sit spot right now. So stepping in and maybe there were tears, but there were also times where I just kind of broke out laughter and joy. And, you know, I remember I laid down to look up into the canopy instead of straight in front of me. And it was magical. I was like, wow, just the simple act of 
laying on the earth and looking up at the canopy and the, the sky and the clouds that were peeking through because there was still a lot of leaves there was a completely new perspective that just delighted me and said, well, I don't want to leave now. Now I really want to stay here. They're calling me back to base camp. And I'm like, I'm not done yet. Yeah. And, you know, and that's that's part of the tools that we offer, too. You know, in yoga classes, I've had more than one teacher tell me that or tell the class that the pose starts the moment you want to leave it. It's when it begins in in my training for meditation, mindfulness meditation teaching. We talked about hot and cold boredom, which, you know, is just the way we frame it. One of them is just can't sit here anymore. I'm so fucking bored. That's the kind of cool boredom. But what you just described was the hot boredom. It's I, I, I can't sit here anymore. I've just got to get up. I, I'm antsy and <clears throat> so choosing to stay choosing to stay in the pose. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, now I don't want to leave this. Now we're getting somewhere, you know, choosing to stay in your seat when you're feeling that hot or cold boredom or whatever it is that's, you know, wanting to get you out of that seat, choosing to stay. It's like a runner who hits the wall and just keeps going all of a sudden that on the other side of that, that boundary, that barrier is where there's so much potential for the illumination, as you suggested. And I think that's just, it's, that's why, that's why I practice because I can get pretty lazy. I can be like, oh man, fuck that. I just, you know, I don't feel like it. I, little, the hedonist in me will come up and say, it doesn't feel good. I don't really want to do it. But having the formal practice gives me a sort of a, a shape a container, a thing that I can actually work with. And I have, I love the word transformation. I, I love it so much in yoga, the whole Svadhyaya, Svadhyaya, Svadhyaya. I actually just wrote a post about it that self-study, you know, and that transformation, there are things that happen in our lives that transform us in that moment you know, really extreme experiences and maybe not even extreme, but in that moment, it's like, whoa, the profundity of it or whatever it is that transforms you, that takes you from here to there, which also may not be comfortable. I mean, uh, go breaking through a chrysalis can't be comfortable. You know, teeth coming through the gums is not comfortable. Flowers moving, breaking up through like certain, these things are just not comfortable, but we have to be able to persevere. And that's how we learn resilience and all the things that we've kind of talked about about that but this and then there are other transformations as you suggested too that are are smaller they're subtler and we may not even recognize them until we do <laughs> until mm -hmm. something happens until we're confronted with a conversation with someone who used to trigger us and we respond in a different way and we go oh my god I last year at this time, I would not have responded in that way. I would have reacted in a very different way. And so, you know, our life experiences that get to mirror what we're what we're learning, how we're transforming. I think transformation is the reason we're all here. And so I think where the tricky thing is, I can't I'm not facilitating your transformation. I'm not responsible for anyone else's transformation. As a teacher, I can provide experiences that can lend themselves to people's transformations, but I have no skin in that game. That's that's their thing. But we get to create communities, intentional communities that will allow us to create the causes and conditions that may best optimally get us to where we want to be. Transform away, people. Fuck it. In relation to transformation, one of the things that I found really, really beneficial that I did take out, take away last week was adding a breath after someone speaks. It gives me a time to process, not react, but to act in response to rather than to react from. And I think it's also a really subtle way of reminding me and hopefully the person who is speaking that I'm paying attention and I'm listening to you. And so that is something that is one of the practices that's new and simple when I remember, you know, so simple until it be, after it becomes a habit, but it still has to become a habit to remember. But when you were talking about loving transformation, it reminded me of a story that one of my teachers told me. And she went on a five-day silent retreat. Intentionally, she chose, I want it to be five days because it needs to be challenging. And the story she tells was the first day they go into the hall for the silent retreat and she sits down and it's silent 
and her brain starts talking and she's like, you can't make me be silent. Like, what if I want to talk? I'm allowed to talk. <laughs> All right. So I can't talk out loud. Fine. I'll just sing it. Start singing my favorite song inside my head. And she started singing and reciting in her head. And she said, I got finished with that. And I realized I was still antsy. How can these people tell me I can't speak? Even though I decided I could talk whenever I want to talk. She said, so for a day and a half, she was singing to herself all of her favorite songs. She goes, and I just kept singing and singing and filling it up and saying, ha ha, you don't even know that I'm, I'm actually talking inside my brain. She said, by the time she got to the second day, she's like, I'm leaving at the end of this day. I'm just, that's it. I, this is ridiculous. I'm not doing this. But something happened after that amount of time where silence came. And she sat back and she said, I stopped singing and I stopped resisting and I stopped being pissed off that people were trying to tell me when I could and couldn't respond and talk. She said, and I embraced this time of watching my thoughts and becoming more aware. And she said, it was the best experience of my life was to be able to have this retreat and kind of laugh at my resistance to do the thing that I really wanted to do, which was to be silent enough and have this time and space for inner reflection and to build inner awareness. But the resistance to do it was so strong for the first almost 48 or more hours of the retreat. The discomfort of transformation, man. And, you know, I think that's true with with a lot of things. And I, I think I've said for the rainbow gatherings, I would go for at least a week, but it would take me two full days to let go of Babylon, to let go of my you know, the the things I hold up in front of me, you know, sort of the barriers, my, you know, I, my own little space to be able to be the free spirited person who lives deep in my soul, but who had to learn how to protect that in Babylon in this, quote, very loose, quote, real world situation where I feel I have to protect my heart and my thoughts and everything else. And so when I go out into this more free spirited, open hearted, open minded, intentional community, it's going to take me a few days to let that go. And so that's the same, like that resistance of allowing myself to be vulnerable, of allowing myself. But as soon as it, the choice to stay with it, the choice to stay on the cushion, the choice to stay on the mat, the choice to stay in silence. Now, I mean, if you've been listening to this, you know, I'm, I'm a big talker. I'm a fast talker. And the most profound thing I ever did was a three-day silent retreat. And I was, it, it was so profound. I, I want to do it more. Like, I didn't feel resistance to that. I felt like, finally, I don't have to, I don't have to put my masculine energy out there. I don't have to talk. I don't have to, and I don't have to anyway. You know, that's not a requirement for being in my, in my life, and my world. But I, to choose to do that and to stay with it, stay the course, and then, you know, do with it. Whatever stays in the sieve after that can can stay in the sieve. But what's different about, I think, going just into an intentional community like a rainbow gathering or going into an actual retreat or a training like that is that your needs are provided for you. You go in there not having to make your meals. You go in there not having to know, you know, what time you should get up, what you should, you're, you're uh, behaving according to the causes and conditions around you, but they are taking care of it for you. You have guides who are giving you the space to simply do that work. You know, when you're in your everyday life, we still have to make our meals. We have to make sure our, if we have kids that they're getting where they need to be, you know, whatever our responsibilities are require that we distract ourselves from that inner work, at least for certain amounts of time. And so to be able to cultivate the energy of, of introspection, of going in, of really doing that requires the time and the space to do it. And so, you know, having guides helps. Yes. Yes. Having guides helps. And, you know, I love making my meals. I'm a bit of a foodie and I like gathering it, Me too. gathering up my food and, yeah. you know, getting what I like and cooking it the way I want to eat it. But boy, when I got home from nine days of people pairing my meals for me, whew, and I had to do it for myself. I was like, oh, man, yeah, there was I a know. joy and also a, hey, where's my chef and the person who's <laughs> going to come when I just put my tray somewhere and it will magically get clean. Right? Yeah. But that, you know, you touched on a couple of things I find to be a really important part of retreat and 
that that role as the guide, the holding a safe space for vulnerability, to hold that healing space. I think it shows up in our lives in so many different ways. To be the person who is in a situation, maybe one that's not theirs. For instance, you know, being the the caregiver for somebody who is struggling or sick that we make that choice to sit in community with them, to be a part of the process they're going through, their illness, their suffering, and to say, I'm here, I'm staying here, I'm with you, I'm sitting at your side, I'm holding your hand, I'm not going anywhere, is such an honorable place to be, to have the ability to hold that space and the desire, that was the word I was looking for, the desire to be somebody who will sit and look in your eyes when you really are struggling and to hold the safe space with you, to not shy away from watching somebody who we know is going through a hard time, but say, I'm going to step into that space with you as a support, as somebody who can hold that safe space and just it might be as simple as just holding your hand, you know, holding the safe space could be just holding your hand or sitting quietly in a room with somebody who needs that support. So yeah, retreat shows up in so many, many different ways. Can we use that word for different situations that come up in our life? Yeah, man. Yeah. So guess what? <laughs> we must be coming up on time. <laughs> well, I mean, ish. I don't know. Is there anything else about retreat that we felt was, uh, oh, you know what? I, so here's something uh, at the beginning. I think I mentioned this in the first season, but for those of you who are just coming in now or were like, yeah, that was so long ago during the pandemic, during the quarantine, I found it really important. My whole family, I have three kids and we were all in the house and I'm very lucky that I got to hug people and I got to be in community. But I also realized the importance of retreat and that how to how to do that in a in a smaller container, you know, for a, a lengthy amount of time. So I said to my family on Fridays, they're my days and you will be responsible for all your things. And I in in sort of the spirit of having all my needs met, I would prepare my food or prepare the ingredients before in advance of Friday so that when it came to be mealtime, I didn't have to think about preparing the food. It was already there. I came up with a sort of a routine that I would do that included asana, which is yoga, asana, meditation, chanting, breathing, sitting outside in nature, just allowing myself to rest, you know, doing a walking meditation in my backyard, you know, doing a walk in my neighbor, whatever it was, I had a very deliberate set of things that I would do, not in any particular order, because I felt like, oh, I have an opportunity to just follow what my heart wants to do. I don't have to do things in an order that someone else or even I decided would be appropriate for this day. But I had the the practices I was going to do. And I felt I did it in silence. I didn't talk to my family. I didn't go on social media. I didn't do those things. But it was really a, a retreat from the routine that was established every day, even though I was in my same space. And it was so profound and it was such a gift. It was a gift not only I gave to myself, but that my family was able to give to me that they didn't, you know, ask me to, you know, do the things that I would normally do. And so it got me thinking about sort of creating a home retreat kit for people with some recordings and some video. And now I'm feeling accountable to that. <laughs> now that I've said it out loud <laughs> and that you've heard it, I have, I have, you know, all of the paperwork. For those of you who are creatives out there who have file cabinets filled with files of the most profound, amazing projects that, you know, you were hoping one day to actually get done. I've actually given to people. I was like, please do this. I want to see this in the world, but I just, I'm not inspired anymore. But this still really inspires me to kind of come up with certain videos and audio to and reading materials and resources online that people can use to craft your own home retreat. And until that becomes a thing, you can do it yourself. You can figure out, you know, even if you're not a chanter, maybe a song that you love just to like sing it around the house at a certain time, you know, when will you do your meditation? Look, do some pranayama, you know, alternate nostril breathing, do whatever it is and have that as a, a, a retreat different from a daily practice. 
you know, a retreat is a deliberate amount of time that you're carving out for yourself longer than it would be like a daily 20 minute meditation kind of thing, which is great. And you should do that too. I'm going to shut all over you. Should do that. But that this is something that feels a little bit bigger than that. Okay. Now I'm going to hold you accountable because I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my papers. I've got it all planned out. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking forward to being able to be inspired by your, the gifts that you will be giving us with Thank recordings you. and videos. And of course, anything I can do to help. I'm, I'm Thank always you. here. I'm always here to Absolutely. be of support. Well, and before but, that comes out, we have an actual live thing going on, people. Oh, uh, go ahead, Teresa. I've just no, talked. No, go right ahead. Yes, that's where I was going. We I have know. rhythm okay. and rhyme coming up. Yay. What a great way to really embrace the change of the seasons and the spirit of the wise woman, which is the energy of autumn, uh, that spirit of wise wise woman, the natural rhythms of the earth and our seasonal clocks. We are coming out of summer, a season of doing a lot of heat and sunshine and being outside into autumn, that transitional season to start our preparation for, you know, maybe the slowdown that's going to come in in winter. But this is the time, you know, I, I was really surprised when I started really looking at autumn and thinking of it as the time of planting seeds. I think of spring as planting the seeds. But when we think about the, the leaves drop, dropping from the trees and blanketing the floor of the forest so that they begin to break down and become the fertilizer for next season's growth, we can look at those outside on our retreat, walking through a nature trail and experience outdoor with both the energy of we're getting ready to slow down, but also what intentions and seeds can be planted that can be nurtured and nourished over our time of winter where we're resting and hunkering down and wrapping up in our blankets. Well, that is if you happen to be in places where it gets really cold in the winter, <laughs> I'm assuming right there. Oh, yeah. So this is coming up in November, and I just want to touch on, you mentioned slowing down. You know, it, in the whole pantheon of things that we could sort of add into what retreat and all of the sort of offshoots and things that come from that, slowing down is really its most essential piece. And some of the values of slowing down are we get to make better decisions. You think about all of the impulsive things that we do that we think, oh, fuck, if I'd only just taken a breath, if I'd only just, you know, slowed down just a little bit, you know, a deeper connection of our, to ourselves, to others, to nature, to our breath, you know, all of the things that we, we talk about, that we have more meaningful moments and experiences while we're also improving our mental well-being and avoiding burnout. So these are things that if any of those words, if any of this language resonates, then you know, Rhythm and Rhyme Retreat is for you. And if you are local to Bucks County, please join us. It's three different days, two Saturdays, Saturday, November 5th and November 19th, and a full moon Tuesday in the middle there on November 8th. And we're going to do some rituals around fire. It's going to just, it's, oh, it's going to be a little witchy. Very excited. So our early bird ends. Here's the thing. If you let us know that you want to do the retreat and you heard it on this podcast, let us know and we will give you the early bird, which is a $44 difference. And 44 is a magic number. It's all angelic. You can look it up. So if you heard it on the podcast and you let us know, send us an email, anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. Oh, shit. I just, I'm past the deadline, but I really want to do the retreat. I heard about it on the podcast. Let us know and you will get that that discount. We will have a special um, code that we can send you in response to that email that you can just put right through. And yeah, we just would love to see you yes. in a space with us so that together we can just explore, hold the safe space and just go out and connect with nature but more importantly, connect with ourselves. And Sherry did mention 
uh, the full moon fire ceremony. If you haven't listened, I think it was last podcast or two ago, she actually howled to show us how we would be howling <laughs> at the moon. <laughs> so if you have something inside you that's saying, I just need to get out and howl out some things, come on over and howl at the moon with us. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up. Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. As always, we want to thank our amazing editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time. Mm-hmm.